executive director of the Massachusetts Newscast, the official podcast of the Massachusetts Coastal Coalition, with host myself, Joe Rossi, and co-host and vice chair of the Massachusetts Coastal Coalition, Tim Williams. Welcome back to another episode of the No Flood Newscast with myself, Joe Rossi, Chair, and Tim Williams, uh, Vice Chair of the Costa Coalition. And Tim, once again, we're in our virtual studio here, and uh, it, it's uh, we just finished up a you know kind of our this is this is getting down to the end of the summer here and the end of what I would consider come of kind of our summer series uh, of podcasts and. Uh, I would say that the one thing that our guests, and I mentioned it in the last podcast, all have in common is they're very diversified. The last, uh, actually, well, probably every guest we've had on um, in what they do, and our guest today is, is no different. We have here today uh, Jim uh, Nadeau. Uh, Jim is uh, very, actually, before, so, and usually I go into introducing the guests and kind of their background, but Jim... Why don't you start off with talking to us a little bit about what you do? Because, you know, I think it's it's more than just land surveyor. And, and I think, you know, talking a little bit about you and your history in the industry um, will give our guests a real great background. Okay. Well, great. Well, first of all, thanks much for having me uh, on this podcast. Um, my name is Jim Netto. I work out of Portland, Maine. I have been a licensed surveyor since... 1993. I started getting into flood a little bit more in depth around 2000, basically because I was creating a lot of elevation certificates. And though I felt like my elevations that I was certifying to were accurate, I really didn't understand if that elevation number was higher or lower, if it helped my client or not. So I then got my certified floodplain manager designation, which helped my certified floodplain surveyor designation that really helped me understand the letter and map change, uh, submittal process, LOMAs and LOMARs. Uh, but it was when I got my ANFI, which is, uh, as you know, an insurance designation. It's a little tough for me to get because I don't sell insurance. The insurance component made all my data make sense. So from being a surveyor, I sort of turned into a consultant, really helping people uh, with recommendations on options on how to reduce premiums, but at the same time, uh, uh, get them out of the flood zone if I can through fill, but also to make sure that if I couldn't get them out to lower their premiums. So that's sort of that in a nutshell. Extending from that, I felt like a good market was there because of the misunderstanding many people have with flood. I started becoming an educator to mostly realtors, but to lenders, other surveyors, insurance agents, community officials, all the stakeholders that play a very important role in the flood program, trying to really just delve into the basics of what the flood program is, but attacking the misconceptions that people seem to have a lot of problem with 
and it seems to have really uh, taken off very well that uh, my delivery of this education has been received well from the people who attend my classes. Well, that's, that's really interesting. I, I think it's, I think your background and, and the reason we wanted to really start off with that is, is the fact that you um, took something that you didn't understand and really dove into trying to make sense of what you were doing and, and what it meant. Um, that is something that when, when we were talking about that um, uh, earlier in, in the year, um, you know, I think that was something that really struck me as important because this industry in particular, but in other industries, I mean, there's a lot of things that are done and, and it might not be understood on what the end result is. Um, and, and that's something that you kind of uh, identified and then took it to the next level. Um, and, and with that, um, you know, kind of taking it to the next level, you also um, sit on um, the Technical Mapping Advisory Council uh, and, and just tell our listeners a little bit, We've, we have yet to hear about, we hear a lot of, about TMAC and whether it be the news or um, our industry folks when they interact with the program, TMAC is usually mentioned at some point, but tell our audience exactly what TMAC is, um, just as a kind of general overview. Yeah, sure. I actually uh, became a TMAC member, a, the land surveyor representative of TMAC, and there's engineers, there's a representative from the Army Corps of Engineers, NOAA, uh, Flood Determination Company, USGS, uh, there, there's a lot of different entities. I believe there's 12 or 15 different entities, one from each industry. As I said, I'm the land surveyor that we actually meet uh, often through the course of a year. And basically the Technical Mapping Advisory Council is a federal advise, advisory committee established to review and make recommendations to FEMA on matters related to the National Flood Insurance Program which was actually authorized under the BW-12 Reform Act in, uh, in 2012. So basically we get charges from uh, FEMA as far as items that they want us to bounce around and make recommendations. We create an annual report for them. Uh, this is going to be, I think the fourth or fifth year that a report goes. And actually from my understanding though, I haven't been on TMAC real long, uh, FEMA has actually grabbed hold of a fair amount of the TMAC recommendations and tried to implement it into the program. So it's a nice place to be, to try to be heard in the sense of trying to make the program better. I do think I provide some good input, but I'll tell you to be in that room with all the other experts in their professions, I could just sit and listen to them because the more I know about the program, I realize the more I don't know because of how diverse the program really is. And it's really just cool to be part of that process. Yeah. Jim, what were some of the recommendations that you guys had, had made that the FEMA had taken? Uh, let me let me get back to that in a second. I uh, throw another question at me because sure. <laughs> I'm not happy right now. Speaking, speaking about, and, and, that's a, and that's a really good uh, lead into our kind of what we're, the bulk of what we want to talk about, which is um, the technology that has started to emerge in all, in, in all different parts of flood. You know, whether that be in your, in your line of work, which is, 
you know, the land surveying and real estate world, um, whether that be the NFIP and, you know, risk rating 2.0, whether that be some of the new First Street information that came out, um, you know, we do want to dive into a lot of those different topics with you today, but start with us and talk to us a little bit about what you've seen in your industry just in the last, you know, five to 10 years in terms of changes in technology that have made a difference in what you do. Yeah, sure. Uh, technology is a really cool component of how we collect data now, how we started collecting data years ago when I first started in surveying. Heck, it was with a steel tape, a stadia rod, and now everything is electronic with total stations. We use satellites. We do collect a lot more data. The data, uh, you know, is more precise in, in general, but it's the data that's more precise. Uh, it's able, uh, the program is able to create a lot more very cool modeling, inundations model, predictive models as far as sea level rise. There's a lot of really nice ways that technology helps the program in my surveying industry, as well as many other industries, of course. But one of the things that I try to get into as a surveyor is making sure that the difference between precision and accuracy is not lost, even though the information or the underlying data is more precise. Software, when it gets to a finished product, implies that everything that's being created is more accurate as far as solutions and avenues to remedy things. Uh, obviously, one of the cool apps that comes out is uh, right on your phone, you're able to uh, identify where flood may reach. And of course, as we all know, there's many parameters of flood that are very uncertain. And even though the data is collect collecting, our ability to predict flood isn't necessarily more accurate. Uh, I think it gets lost sometimes because if you are collecting data to a whole foot, then the end product should never be to a hundredth of a foot just because the underlying data doesn't support that. But when stakeholders or the public on the user end see these numbers to the hundredth of a foot, they imply a high level of accuracy. And that's dangerous when it comes to Im implementing good mitigation strategies or understanding the uncertainties of flood risk. It, it gets lost and I, I'm gonna keep beating the drum of trying to make sure that people understand that big difference between uh, precision and accuracy. Uh, one of the other good examples I like to use is every time I get somebody out of the flood zone with the letter of MAP amendment, I always recommend a preferred risk policy, which is that optional flood insurance program after because I emphasize to them that I've only eliminated the need for mandatory insurance for that particular lender, but your actual risk has not changed at all. And I just try to make sure they understand the difference between what I gave them for a product and what it really means to them. And that, that delves right back into the difference between precision and accuracy in, in an indirect way, at least. Hmm. That's really interesting. Tim? Yeah, it's, it's, you're, you're so on point with you being so technical and getting 
being able to you know, come down to that hundredth of a foot or whatever you're using for the terminology. But there's too many people out there, in my opinion, that, that are getting that preferred risk policy. So, you know, what kind of things are out there that, you know, we have these X zones now. Do you see in the future like a, another zone being put into the special flood hazard area where it's still low risk, but it's not an X zone, let's say, but they're going to have a mandatory purchase with it, you know, to grow the program. I just don't know if that's something that's been on the table or not. I'm just curious what your thoughts on something like that would be. Well, well, as, as you were saying that, it actually brought me back to one of the recommendations from the 2018 report, which partially will answer that, is that we've made a recommendation of a flood uncertainty band concept with the program in the last report. And that kind of goes well into the risk rating too, uh, going into away from the binary method of flood risk, whether you're in the flood zone or not, is we're trying to get people to understand that it's not that black and white and this uncertainty band is going to uh, take a lot of these new risk rating two parameters and create a more specific rate for each building. And of course that technology LIDAR is going to help with that process, but they're trying to evaluate each individual home. The program is uh, with, with much more parameters that are being used now. So there can be risk that aren't just straight V zone or X zone. They're kind of going to, uh, phase into lower risk, lower premiums. They're going to try to drive in that direction now with this new big change that's coming with the program. So that was one of the recommendations that TMAG had in the 2018 report uh, that we recently delivered of trying to move away from binary, whether you're in or out. As you know, many people who do not have to get mandatory insurance, perhaps out of saving a few dollars on a premium or uh, you know, just ease for them in their busy schedule is if that the program doesn't make mandatory insurance for somehow that, that segues into them being safe from flooding. And hopefully this flood uncertainty band and these type of concepts help move people away from nobody safe from flooding, but we have to try to evaluate your risk a little bit better and attach a premium to that. It's, it's such a great point because there's so many major events that we see where people are uninsured or, you know, that, uh, and it's, it, you know, these storms come miles in off the coast or wherever they're from and that people don't have that insurance and they're, and they're left out. Um, so that uncertainty band is a fascinating concept that, that could tie into the new, uh, you know, map real risk rating. So Joe, your thoughts on that? Yeah, it actually, I, I, I want to, that's a great transition into something that we touched on just a little bit ago that I want your thoughts on, Jim, because actually this idea between accuracy, precision versus accuracy, I think really speaks a lot to the most recent release of data from First Street Foundation, which a lot of people have talked about. Um, and, you know, we've, there's been articles in the paper and there's been, you know, a lot of stories out there about how, you know, First Street has gone through and, you know, has this big national model. And I think the information is really good. It's a great information tool. But, you know, again, being involved in, in your role as both TMAC and also as a, you know, professional in the industry, 
you know, take us through a little bit what your thoughts are on when somebody says, oh, well, you know, this set of data says one thing and this set of data says another, and which is essentially what some of that comparison and analysis did. Um, when you see that type of stuff, what, in your mind, what does that tell you about what's going on technology-wise in the industry right now? Well, it, it's a great uh, question because, first of all, regardless of what the model is or the platform or the overlay, because of flood uncertainty, we should all accept that it's only a guide for flood risk. And uh, First Street is, is not any different. I mean, they really have a lot of very cool data. The thing that I probably like the most out of flood First Street is, is that um, they're pushing probably almost twice as many homes that they feel that are at actual risk than the NFIP program. Whether that's right or not, you know, we'll see. I mean, you know that the flood maps, the current flood maps get picked on a lot because they're outdated and it's really a budget component. Uh, but there is an awareness that that has to occur with people using flood maps or understanding flood risk uh, that it is going to get better. And we have to, one of the big changes we did actually uh, throwing it back to where we were other recommendations we made is that the flood program is a three-legged stool of mitigation, regulation, and insurance. And there's been, we are pushing a fourth leg on that stool of mitigation because at the end of the day with technology or new maps, et cetera, to make the program work in my opinion, which is not my forte, uh, but it's really finding a way to change people's behavior and how they look at flood. And, and as you know, I'm a realtor as well. And, and for me, the, the way to do that best is attaching real estate values to risk a little bit better, perhaps through disclosure, uh, to get the users or the public more engaged into flood risk. It, it, it sounds harsh, but I think you need to take something from them or get their attention in a way. And, and I always think value is a really good place to go because that's the whole hinge of the program is a federally backed or insured loan is when the flood program kicks in. So the whole attaching risk to value is a big component for us or for me to see how this program gets better, even more so than any new platform, in my opinion. Jim, you had mentioned that you do a lot of lending and on that subject, you know, I've read articles or there's articles out there of, you know, banks and lenders not want, you know, going into the future. It's, it's an uncertainty about whether they'll lend in these, you know, special flood hazard areas, particularly V zones or high risk zones. What's your thoughts on the, the future of lending in, in these areas? Well, I, I've, I've been seeing that, lenders are starting to take a different take on flood a little bit, just because of course, when we start doing sea level rise predictions, you know, they're per century, per half century, and 2050 is the middle of this century and a typical 30 year loan would start in 2020. So it's actually the math of that has simply in my opinion, gotten the lenders paying attention a little bit more that 
geez, those predictions are gonna occur in the life of this particular loan that we're creating. Uh, so it, it's interesting how lenders are starting to see it a little bit more real as well. Uh, don't know if I can add a lot more to that other than it is getting their attention more in my opinion. Yeah, and in speaking to, you know, values, I think that's a, you know, there was a report that came out uh, a couple of years, maybe a year or two ago, uh, at least in the Boston area, I think it was an East Coast study about the values of real estate. Um, to your point, Jim, you know, over time, due to the different climate-driven issues that we face in our uh, in our society right now, um, and, and that really, to me, points back to to mitigation, whether that's elevating or acquiring or the various different pieces that go into, um, you know, making a, a either property safer or acquiring that property to make it open space. Um, you know, as, as you, you know, in your land surveying practice and in real estate practice, as you go around and see the different issues um, through properties all through the area, um, what's something that you, you see in terms of a future recommendation to somebody that says, you know, what am I going to do to protect myself from these future events um, and protect myself and my real estate from uh, uh, decline in, in that value? I know you had just touched on it a little bit, but what are some, you know, recommendations that you would have for individuals that ask those questions? Because those are starting to be uh, major issues and questions that are coming up. Right, and it's a great, great question. And I would say that the very first thing is, if you don't have mandatory insurance, uh, consider a preferred risk policy, first of all. Uh, second, and it's no, no pitch necessarily, you know, from my industry, but getting an elevation certificate and knowing where your lowest floor is relative to the base flood elevation, don't know how that's all gonna play out in risk rating too. Uh, but to know where you are, what I tell my clients is after I get the elevation certificate, not only is the insurance agent able to rate that building properly, it allows me to look at your building now, building type where your lowest floor is, your mechanicals, and create options or solutions through mitigation strategies uh, to lower your premium and to make the building safer. One of the things that we're doing here uh, in Maine, because not all of the uh, counties have switched over to the D firms, we also then look at the pre preliminary firms and yeah. see what we can do to be proactive to get them in a the best situation, uh, premium wise and safety wise before the new, the preliminary maps become the effective maps. Uh, that, that has gone over really well with our clients because uh, that whole proactive uh, pitch really gives them that level of comfort that they don't have to worry so much about what's the maps going to do to me later because we kind of spell it out. And with that, is only one big assumption is our recommendations are being made on a preliminary map that is not going to change, but because of budget constraints, that's a pretty good chance that it doesn't, but we offer that as well as part of our fee to do an elevation certificate. Mm. That's really interesting. I think it it takes, again, like you started off, it takes that data and, and work that you're doing initially and really takes it to its conclusion, which is at the end of the day, you know, how can that, how can the budget for flood 
um, be managed. And I think that's a great example of you being able to do that. Um, kind of jumping to something a little bit different than what we've been talking about. Um, I, I recently, about a week ago, received a newsletter called Welcome to the Flood Zone from, uh, from your organization. So talk to us a little bit about this national newsletter if, uh, for people to uh, sign up and, and receive. And I've got to tell you, Jim, it really is uh, not only funny, because I know you always throw a little cartoon in there about flood, um, but it's really great information. Really, it, it appears that you, you know, take a lot of the great relevant information that's come out. I mean, there's hurricane safety tips in this one, um, map change life cycle, really great um, documents. And you throw a little commentary in here. And uh, actually, you, you usually throw in here if you're going to be speaking somewhere, too. So talk to us a little bit about this newsletter, how it started and in some of the different things that you do. Well, great. Uh, thank you for bringing that up. We started that newsletter about eight and a half years ago. Uh, we, I think we're at issue 108 or 110. It started off just being local. Uh, the National Society of Land Surveyors picked it up uh, and other organizations has as well. And sometimes it reaches, I, I, I would guess, in the 30,000 nationally. And we have a couple rules with the newsletter is that we just don't add people on our newsletter list. We ask them if they want to be added. It's very easy to unsubscribe, but we really want people who are interested in flood doing the newsletter. And the other rule we have is we don't talk about any of our projects. We do list our classes that we teach, but we make it a 100% education newsletter. Uh, and if we're talking about kudos with the newsletter, I, it would it would not be fair if I did not bring up Nikki in my office, who is a big part of that newsletter. Uh, she digs in every month to find newsletters uh, or articles to put into the newsletter that uh, makes the newsletter really well received. And she is the one who always finds the flood funny, which always goes over well. Uh, but we team up and put that out. She's a huge part of it, but. Uh, it, it's all education. We're just trying to get people to understand options. And uh, one of the big things that I always bring up is that we can pick at the NFIP and, and say that they have weaknesses or, uh, you know, disconnects or et cetera. But I'm a true flood junkie. The program is a wonderful program. And there's really very, there's lots of really good options for people who want to be proactive and understand the program. And we just try to make sure that our followers see that there are many options out there and hopefully some follow it and everyone who follows it does make the program a little bit better. Well, you know, Jim, I told you that this, had, this, this time would fly by and we've got about five minutes left, believe it or not, here uh, today. And so as we're getting down here at the end, I want to first see, uh, uh, you know, give Tim a second to ask his one of his final questions. And then after Tim, I'm going to let you kind of conclude with some stuff that you may want people to leave with um, uh, as as some of the most important things to take away from today. So, so Tim. Yeah, just um, <clears throat> thank you for for the time, Jim, I guess. My final question would just be more on, you know, we all know that 
there's been struggles with mapping and the difficult communities fighting back on some of these models that were being used. Um, I feel like it's that's kind of now past us and we're now moving into an exciting era with the technology. It's still got to go there. I just want your final thoughts on like, where do you see the mapping going? You know, do you see any issues coming up with real risk rating or in what you see for the future of, of mapping as it relates to the NFIP? Well, that, that's a question that, yeah, it's a tough one to answer, but I will, I will offer in the, in, in the vein that as long as technology is understood that it has limitations because of the many uncertainties of flood, you know, watershed changes, development, impervious surface, size of storm, frequency, uh, drainage infrastructure. You guys know all that many things that make floods a very direction of the storm speed. Uh, there, there needs to be an understanding on the limitations of what technology can give us with flood. And it would probably go back right into my closing statements as far as what I would, what I would offer is that uh, in real estate, it's location, location, location when it comes to value. Uh, for me, for flood, it's, it's education, education, education in the sense that the program does work and it can work at a much higher level. But like it or not, for the people that are out there that want to be reluctant to implement mitigation strategies or options or solutions, they're out there. But people need to become proactive and find a way to justify how it's best to behave, change their behavior and, and tackle flood in a proactive way because there's really wonderful solutions out there on how to make flood better. But they need to do it on their own a little bit with education and, and asking questions to qualified stakeholders on what's the best solution for them. I, I think the program can get very good. Uh, again, uh, it's not bad now, but I just think that because it's gone into deficits that it has this black mark against it. But uh, it, the flood world has changed because of the size of these storms and development along the coastal communities but education and mitigation strategies will definitely help the program better long-term. And I don't see myself ever changing to that, except and welcome the new technology, but get educated on how to make the program choices better for yourself. That's really great. You know, it's so, it's so interesting, Jim, that that conclusion that you just put there is the same conclusion. I think, Tim, our last maybe three or four guests have said the same thing, which is how important education is to the industry. And that was from people from all different parts of the industry. So I guess, Tim, if we could summarize our kind of our, we'll call it summer series of the No Flood Newscast, it's that education, regardless of what industry it is, education is really one of the crux of making important decisions making educated decisions and, and moving the needle forward on, on flood um, in, in general. So with that, Jim, I want to thank you so much for coming on the No Flood Newscast uh, today. You've really given a very unique perspective. Uh, and, you know, we broadcast from, uh, you know, the South Shore of Massachusetts. We're probably only 100 miles away. So hopefully when this all 
clears up uh, sometime next year, probably we've got to have you down to hopefully our in-person studio, maybe to catch up on some of the changes that uh, have actually happened um, by, by next year. Well, I, I would welcome the opportunity to come down for sure, Joe. That'd be great. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Jim. And uh, thank you everybody for listening to this episode. Thank you, Jim.